brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. So if you don't think about that too much, because thinking about things is the death knell of parenting, (laughs) then, (laughs) then you'll kind of find your way. Like this is very important and I'm not important. What I say matters. What I what I say doesn't matter. It's both, and that is not fixed by logic. That's fixed by hanging in in a connective emotional way. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. It is my pleasure to have today with us Megan Leahy. She's the mother of three daughters. She holds a bachelor's degree in English and secondary education from Catholic University of America. She taught English literature in a gifted and talented curriculum at an all-boys school for five years. She also holds a master's degree in school counseling from Johns Hopkins University. Megan is a parent educator with PEP, the Parent Encouragement Program here in Kensington, Maryland, and just outside Washington, D.C., and is certified as a parent coach through the Center for the Challenging Child LLC in Roseville, Minnesota. In addition, she is certified as Renee Trudeau Personal Renewal Group Facilitator, Mother's Groups. And Megan, I know Megan as the columnist for the Washington Post, where she writes about all things parenting and is currently working on a certification to, to be a facilitator through the Newfield Institute. And lastly, she is, of course, the author of this fantastic new book, Parenting Outside the Lines, Forget the Rules, Tap into Your Wisdom, and Connect with Your Child. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Is there anything weirder than having your bio read to you? <laughs> I, know, I I agree with you. Like, I just want to make it shorter and shorter. But I, yeah, I'm just like, um, just a mom. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, you know, and and I think that that's one of the things that's so cool about this book is obviously you're extremely experienced as a parent educator, but the humanity of this, the realness of this book just, just bleeds off the page. Um, I think it's so easy for anyone who is an expert to only tell stories that paint themselves as an expert and you are as open. I mean, some of these things had me just, you know, shooting my coffee out my nose. They were so funny and so revealing. I hope your, your husband and, and, and lovely daughters are, are, <laughs> I mean, I kind of, you know, I was like, so I wrote about you guys a little. Do you want to check it? And they were like, are we, will we be okay with it? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I ran it by them, but yeah. (laughs) Uh, I I did the same thing with my kids. So, so, so let me ask this. So, so let's start, let's just start at the top. Why Mm. did you write this book now? And what exactly do you mean by parenting outside the lines? Um, why did I parent this? Why did I write this book now? I, well, you know, because you wrote a terrific book. I'm actually sitting looking at it right now. Um, it started many years ago. Um, and it started as a very kind of boring book about like the, a life in the day of a preschooler. And the editors were like, snooze. 
this sucks. <laughs> um, this is, this doesn't sound like you. I'm like, well, what sounds like me? He said something more human more funny. Right. So I decided to write a book about essentially questions I get constantly from mm. my clients, from my friends, myself, Washington Post readers. And so it's a little bit sequential in terms of I start with even before you get pregnant and, you know, it's meant to as the kids get older, but it's more thematic in that Mm -hmm. topically. Um, And what else did you ask? Well, and what what do you mean by what do parents take for parenting outside the lines? Yeah, I didn't know what to name this book forever. <laughs> I wanted to name it, of course, with curse words. And they're like, that's not going to fly. And of course, there's like a billion parenting books now with curse words <laughs> on the front. But fine. Um, from where I sit, um, and you may experience the same in your work in a slightly different way. The majority of parents I coach <laughs> are in a pickle because they've chosen a theory. Hmm over the needs of the kids or their own family or even themselves. So they've kind of decided I'm going to be a positive parent or I'm going to be a conscious parent or I'm going to be a simplicity parent or whatever. And then it's not working. Right. And so they keep trying to find non-abusive ways to make it work. Hmm. Um, And so I kind of wanted to write a book that was like, stop it. Like it, it's not about the theories and the trends um, and stop ironically reading books. I'm, I'm kind of highly aware that I am part of the very problem that I espouse to want to stop, right? Like stop listening to experts, by the way, read my book about. <laughs> 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 it's like deprogramming, right? <laughs> um, right. Um, there's a, and the number one thing I see with my clients is that there's a deep need to skip over suffering. Um, I think Mm. it's very human and um, I don't love suffering. Um, Can you explain that they're suffering, their kids suffering, everyone's suffering? Sure. Yeah. Um, Mostly their own because at the end of the day, we're all kind of narcissistic in our own little ways. Their kids are suffering and nobody just, nobody wants it. Um, and nobody sees it as a as maybe a conduit to growth or learning. Many don't, not all. And so I, I'm in two simultaneous worlds. I'm I'm one where I'm trying to illuminate what it is, um, how to exit or how to stay in it, while also explaining to them that you can't get through the parenting without the suffering. Hmm. Like, so does that so does that mean they, they too often as parents because suffering is hard that we want to sort of paper it over do whatever fixes that you know makes everybody happy in the moment but we just allow problems to grow and we just we, we don't have the strength or the courage to kind of get to the root of what's causing the suffering that and um, because my field has become strategy heavy. Um, hmm. the parent education field, there's just a grasping feeling 
of, of uh, just one more fix, just one more book, just one more therapist, just one more, right? And so I just kind of want, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves. They're all non-binary. They're all just what they are. Um, they're, they're, they're tools for good or not, or they're just tools. Um, so I'm always inviting parents to, and the book asks them to ask, to have them reflect on themselves. Like, Hmm. where am I in this? Because sometimes the kid is the problem and sometimes they aren't, but either way, you're only responsible for yourself as a parent. You cannot that's hard, that's hard for parents, right? Another person to change. I mean, I got into coaching to try and force people to change. All I want to do is change people. It's like <laughs> heroin to me. I'm like, yeah. and it's never worked. <laughs> it's never worked. So. And so parents keep casting about for this method to change my kid didn't work, and that and and they keep looking for the wrong direction to 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 fix their kids rather than what they do themselves. Yes, and. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of patience for just being in a tough spot. There is mm. not a lot of patience for transition, for uh, development, for growth, for not knowing. Because um, when you're in the valley, you don't want to be in the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to stand outside your kids' door and not know. You don't want tantrums. You, nobody, but sometimes there's nothing to fix it. Right. Hmm. Like, and if you look inside, you can start to discern the difference between when you can take action and when you need to ride something out because life is just being lifey. Well, let's jump in on one of those because you mentioned tantrums, right? Uh, which are, of course, <laughs> very specific to, uh, I'm sure a lot of the parents are working with, with the younger kids, but. Uh, yeah, the I parents are having the- many. <laughs> But you make the point that tantrums are how growth happens. Can you can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So my life was changed when I met Gordon Neufeld because um, I was working at PEP and I couldn't, I didn't know why some parents were changing and some parents weren't, why some kids were tantruming and some weren't, right? So we kind of had a set of what to do. And, and I, I couldn't discern why. There were changes for others and not for some. And um, when I started studying with Gordon Neufeld and understood the nature of a tantrum, right, which is frustration energy exploding, right? And um, humans are uniquely built to be frustrated, right? So (laughs) we are the only (laughs) (laughs) mammal. Go us. We're the only mammal. Um, as Neufeld says, we either change what frustrates us or what frustrates us changes us. Mm. Right. So if you're hiking and you have a stone in your shoe, we are the only mammals that can sit down, take off a shoe and shake out a stone. Okay. Now let's say you take off your shoe and it's not a stone. It is a giant blister. Right. You have a neural path that is grown that um, reminds you that you will never again hike without a Band-Aid, hike in new shoes. That pain, that frustration changes you forever, right? Which is why lecturing and all that doesn't change people, right? Mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, Sadly, yeah. otherwise, otherwise you'd I be mean, out of a job. Oh, yeah. My favorite <laughs> thing to do you. is gather my kids and be like, I will now give you the wisdom. And they're like... There's I, there's a cartoon that I love, uh, and it's his dad. He's got these two kids, and they're fighting. And he grabs both by the scruff of the neck, and he says, now listen up and listen up, good boys. I'm only going to say this a million times. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. So, all right, frustration, tantrums. So what you're seeing here is something not working for the child, right? Like yep, yep, an explosion. Yep. And... So there are times, like I write in the book, where that explosion is what is necessary to bring the child into the next developmental stage, Hmm. right? So if a child wants um, the red cup and not the blue cup, and you take a lot of pains to just make sure there's no tantrum, you're prohibiting growth, right? Because you keep changing the environment to make sure the child doesn't suffer. Oh, when in fact, in fact, what they just need to know is that, no, dude, this is the cup. Now, on the flip side, let's say you have a child with a learning disability who's not reading well. That frustration isn't serving them. It's breaking them down. There's no other side. The other side is just a true depression, an inward Right. So the book is like, um, I want parents, like, tantrums are communication. And what is that saying? And how do I feel about tantrums? It's really kind of complicated. You know, some parents are so um, sensitive, noise avoidant, upset avoidant, anything, right? And they twist themselves into pretzels for, you know, for, to make it worse down the road. And some parents um, take everything as a, as a chance to fight. Hmm. You know, let me show you who's boss and don't understand that the child just needs to move through the frustration. So my job is hopefully to help them discern what a tantrum means. And a lot of times we just, we don't know. We don't know until we're on the other side of it. Like, oh, that's what that was about, right? Or, you know, we'll have years of a tough kid only to find out that they're dyslexic and couldn't put words to what was happening. And of course, they were difficult around homework. Of course, they were depressed. Of course, they were avoidant, right? Um, And tantruming and, and having things. So... I want it to just be more thoughtful instead of like, let's make another chart. Mm -hmm. Let's find another consequence, which is today's euphemism for punishment. Right, 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 right. That's a long answer to an easy question. Well, it's it's a wonderful answer. And I um, sort of put two things together. You tell that really just incredibly touching story about the the father with a boy who was having a full-on tantrum uh, in, in Orlando. Mm. Um, and if I can sort of steer you towards that, um, kind of, the, the, well, the overarching philosophy of your book about connection and the mm-hmm. connection is the North Star. I really, I, I think it'd be very helpful for, for readers to hear a bit about that. And I wonder whether that story about the boy in Orlando is a nice kind of introduction to, to how that dad was pre- preserving that above all else and helping that kid. Yeah. So that's a story about, you know, when you see kids in airports and one is really going out of control, um, I think most people brace for it to go south. 
And the boy was, quote unquote, too old to be doing this. Mm, okay. Right. Um, which we put, we prize, uh, us parents really prize like too old, too young, which is very arbitrary um, if we really knew that. But you're too, yo- you're too old to be this short. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but in the book, you know, the kid is screaming and there's hot coffee being held. And I was waiting for this father to do some of the stereotypical father stuff. You're too old. Stop it. You know, strong arm him. And he just, you know, really calmly kind of waited and then brought him over and spoke to him really lovingly, very quietly. I was mostly impressed with how he did not succumb to what was clearly an audience, right? Because parents, Mm. you can begin to sweat when you feel like people are watching you and you, we become performative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We either become overly effusively kind, which reads to the kid as maybe like you've really gone off the meds or on extra meds. (laughs) Or we start my famous, like, yeah, yeah. Like a whisper yell or um and he was just fully engaged with taking care of his son. Whatever was gonna happen there, whether there was gonna be apologies later or amends or a lesson, this father was wise enough to not do it in the moment, right? Because he knew that that the temperatures were running too high. Um and that kind of connection, I was like, wow, what a master lesson. Wow. Yeah, it was so good. Wow. There's a story in, in our book. Uh, when I was, my, we had a, uh, my daughter was just about two, and there's a ground stop uh, in, at O'Hare. And it's one of those things where they're about to go down and run the way, and then, and then, and then, and then, and it stops. Our ladies and gentlemen, we have a word from the tower. We're going to sit here for maybe the next four hours, right? And my daughter, of course, doesn't understand any of this. She gets about a year and a half. And, but she can feel everybody's stress rise. Totally. And then just bursts into tears. And I did an epically terrible job of trying to soothe her because to your point, I was so worried about everyone. I was going to be that guy. Totally. It, well, and it's, you have to go through those things though a couple times. Yeah. Right. Like you have to yeah, kind of yeah. be like, why was I like that? Right. But that strong reaction place versus response comes from ego. Hmm. But when you have enough compassion for yourself, then your ego doesn't have to constantly rise up to fix, change, worry, threaten, bribe. Um, And it's so fast. It's so quick to happen to us. We're not even aware. Like no parent wakes up in the morning like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to gaslight the hell out of my kids today. And then I'm (laughs) going to kind of mentally abuse them. And then I'm going to blame them for crying. Like nobody wakes up to be a jerk. Nobody that calls me. Uh, We have one in office, but otherwise. (laughs) And so I have a lot of empathy for myself and for parents who see what they're doing. Right. And what they want to do is they call me and they say, I want to stop. Give me the technique that helps me stop doing X, which I write in my book, like it's powerful to stop doing things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I find a funny back door to that is, is humility and self-compassion of saying like, I'm not going to get it right. I'm not here. I can't do it all right. Right. I'm, I'm a human. Um, I'm, I'm doing the best I can and it's not great, but 
Um, I, a lot, a big thing I talk to parents about is that we think we have control over things we never did. It's like such a facade. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell the story about, um, or, or tell us what you mean by the metaphor of leaving the shopping cart behind? Because boy, if any parent hasn't ever lived that, that just rung so true, at least for me. <laughs> yeah, that is about um, the needs of the situation and how parents, when we're not honest with ourselves about what we're doing, I'm just going to stop and get some groceries really quick. I'm just going to do this quick thing. If we took the time to speak to ourselves about ourselves, then we would just say what we're doing, which in that case, I was trying to buy $300 of groceries in 15 minutes at a crowded giant in Bethesda. <laughs> okay. And my what daughter- could possibly go wrong? I, <laughs> with a two-year-old. <laughs> right. Who had had it, which is the most important factor, right? Like she had had it. She was done. Done for the day. Um, and as things got increasingly worse, um, I just up and left the store with a grocery cart full of groceries. I didn't get anything I purchased. I didn't get, um, I was utterly embarrassed. My daughter was at crazy ends. I had screamed all the curse words aloud in the storm. And it was my biggest first lesson in, there is nothing that needs to happen that badly Hmm. that, should cost me my relationship with my child. Unless life or death or serious injury is around the corner, everything else can kind of wait, right? I even, because, you know, and I write about people be like, well, your kid needs to learn the lesson, right? Right, right, right. And there's times where also that's true. Um, but you have to ask what the cost is. Right. So there's always a cost. And sometimes it's worth it and sometimes it's not. Do you see one of the things that you didn't use these words, but but I, I kept hearing I'm kept imagining the voices of of you know parents you're working with who who kind of got stuck in that thinking of sort of the slippery slope fallacy. Yes. You know, that's what I kept, you know, but if I do it now, you know, if I, if I give in to my two-year-old, he'll grow up to be an ax murderer, you know. Yes, or, the lie, you know. the parenting lie yeah, of consistency. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Those are the words I was yes. looking for. Oh, what a bunch of BS. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know who started it. If I were less lazy, I would, um, but I am profoundly lazy as there is no data in the book, if you've noticed, because I'm like, I'm not looking things up. Hello, no, done. Um, but when parents tie themselves to consistency as the gold standard, rather than their relationship with their kids or the parent being in control of the family, which people think is like a bad thing, mm-hmm. you end up being consistently wrong. <laughs> you end up making consistent mistakes because you're holding, again, a theory over common sense, logic the needs of the situation, relationships, like shit that actually matters in humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've never met a CEO or anybody that's run anything successfully that's been like, this is how we've been doing it for 180 years. Never a change. 
right? Right, right, right. You, you always have to have flexibility. But parents think that if you are flexible, that equals weakness. Well, if I can add to that, one, one point that you made in your book is you were great with your daughter as a baby. Great until she was no longer a baby, right? And so how we need to parent our kids as infants versus as toddlers versus children versus teenager versus adult are really different things. And so they're growing and changing, and we have to be flexible too. So, so I one of the things I love the point that you make about kind of understanding what's developmentally appropriate, because I, I I know I've fallen into this thinking, you know, if my kid is behaving like this when he's a teenager, it's going to be a disaster. And so I start, you know, bringing that on my kid when he was a toddler. I've got to start. I got to start teenage, teenage behavior at toddlerhood when when because you mentioned executive functions, it's impossible because you talk about you know give kids you know do this do this do this do this when they're working memory they can't hold five things in the head and they go oh look legos right right <laughs> and then it's a mess right and that story building um that if my kid does this they'll be a serial killer at 16 mm-hmm. right if my kid does this now number one thing i hear is they'll be a spoiled rat um um, we're very, very worried about um, raising spoiled brats. I'm so sorry for my right. dogs in the back. Um, <laughs> there's just nothing to be done for them. But um, there's, it's a, it's a false, it's a false co- correlation. It's a, it's an interesting thing because there's no doubt, as you know, that how you raise your kids, especially in the first five years, is directly correlated to how they act as a teen. And yet, you can't treat them the way um, you would treat a teen later because, as you said, the developmental standards don't match up. And because parents don't understand the deep need for connection, they will substitute punishments, rewards, um, strategies, all these behavioral things when what all humans need is connection to become great people later. Of course, boundaries show up as connection and some punishments show up as connection. But when you put your North Star controlling your kid for an eventuality that you may never know, it's going to like kind of destroy you every time. Uh, you have a lovely line early in the book where you said that boundary detachment helps grow adults who understand other people's perspectives which I think is such a, such a great way to think about this. And, and I'm sure you, you know this in your work way more than I do in mine, that, that we, we tend to whipsaw from being overly controlling. And then we, we upset the kids and we go overly permissive and go back and forth and back and forth and just that staying in that middle ground, right? Well, I guess Jane Nelson calls it, you know, um, you know kind but firm. Yeah, it's just, firm and friendly, it's, yep. Yeah, it's just so, it's hard, right? Not only is it hard, but it looks different for every parent. Right. So the mm. middle ground is for me completely different from my husband. So, you know, I woke, I wake up and just say no. Like my nickname is Killjoy. Right. I just am <laughs> like, is something happening where people look happy? Stop it. And something's wrong. Okay. And I am a master at holding boundaries. Um, and so my work is to move toward being like, little more loosey-goosey my husband like the world will be on fire and he'll be like hmm 
maybe I should do something here, right? <laughs> so we will never be in the middle of, of, of a standard. So we have our own middles that we, uh, I like to say, aspire to. Right. We have an aspiration toward him holding more boundaries and me holding fewer. Um, And so my work with parents is really and some of the questions in the book are like, where are you in this? Because you're never going to be whoever you're imagining you're going to be. Right. Because parents will be like, this is how I need to be. I'm like, you're, you're not. You're done. You're cooked. Right. right? Like whatever change you're going to make. <laughs> teeny bitty bitty. Like, let's just work with what we got. Is, so is that sort of the self-compassion of rather than holding ourselves? And I, I think the, the, the I from everything I know, um, you know, having been a, a mom, um, but more reading about them, of course, is, is that the, I think that the, the pressure and the self-talk uh, the expectations that the mothers hold themselves to, you know, are, are so often are impossible, right? Um, and so, it, to your point about self-compassion, that we're, I know, we're trying to move in the direction of we're aspiring to be, rather than saying, "Here's 100%," and I and I and I, and I find all the ways that I fall short of that every day. Yeah, and you know, kids don't need 100%. They don't want 100%. Right. And they don't need parents to be on the same page. I kind of look for the same bookshelf. Got it. That's what I say. <laughs> like, let's just get in the same library. Yeah, shelf-ish. Yeah. Um, they don't need a hundred percent from us. They don't want a hundred percent. They don't, um, they don't really need a lot of what we think they need from us. Um, it's usually much simpler uh, they're far more uh, forgiving and okay with our humanity than we are. Um, I'm, I'm kind of more of like a 70 to 75 percent model. Like, like, like 10 percent better, right? Yeah. Right, because the, parent, the parents who are giving 100 percent of what they think is what is needed are deeply unhappy people. Say more about that. They're usually being a hundred percent of not themselves. Huh. Right. Um, so they're either being a hundred percent of who they don't want to be, usually from how they grew up, or hundred percent of who they think they should be, which again is not themselves. And so what I find is maybe a smooth, you know, a smooth river, but underneath, right, it is churning with um, frustration, depression, anxiety, um, worry, fear, and a ton of resentment. Hmm. Um, And, you know, it's a revolutionary thing to be like, what if like this is okay enough? Yeah, yeah. There's, I know there's a, there's a study about, I think it was in the UK, um, asking kids about what they wanted, you know, more time with their parents, more, more of this, that, whatever. And mm-hmm. the, the, the top of the list, they wanted their parents to be happy or happier. Totally. Right? Totally. And you make, the, you make this, this insight in the book, which I think is such a good one, that kids, especially little kids, they feel when we are frustrated. They feel when we're angry. They feel when we're tired. They feel when we're upset. They, they feel all these things. And they, they, with immature brains, 
don't know mom's having a bad day and she's really angry at you know verizon mom's because mom's angry near me she must be angry at me right which is like divorce 101 right like yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, there's entire bookshelves of full of why kids are traumatized by different life situations and they don't need to be hmm. if only parents matched up um, you know, I worked. I worked with a client who had gastric bypass surgery, and um, she was very fat, and then became very skinny very quickly. And um, she has tremendous food issues, and now the ch- her daughter has tremendous is maybe food issues. I don't really know, um, but I, I we coached her around owning her own stuff saying like, gosh, you know, I'm still so weird about snacking and saying it in front of her kid and saying, you know, I have an old voice. I have an old story that tells me lies and it tells me that I can't have this snack. And it makes me feel a little crazy sometimes. And I feel like I do that to the family too. What do you think, sweetie? Right. So really modeling and letting, letting, the, letting her kids see inside of her head, not just the expression right. of her face. And that the child is taking the anxiety of the mother and internalizing it, not realizing that it has nothing to do with the child. Nothing. It's all the mother's stuff. Right. So I said, let's just bring together, let's stop the cognitive dissonance and bring together the energy with your thoughts and feelings so that we don't pass on the generational trauma and disordered eating, right? And unworthiness. Food is, you know, expectations are hard food. I mean, particularly in the world that we live in, you know, where, where understandably parents are concerned and should be concerned about their kids' health. But, I, but it, it sure seems like, it, at least it, uh, it sure seems like it can go way beyond healthy. Uh, it can be good issues of control of, you know, assumptions about what's right food, what's good food. Um, to your point, sort of the performative aspect of, well, my kids only eat, you know, whole grain, you know, grass right. red, blah, 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 eggs and whatever. Um, yeah. And I'm not, and I'm, you know, I'm, that, that's not to, to poo-poo environmental concerns, but um, making it your kid's obligation to, uh, to meet your, so that you can meet your expectations of what being a good parent or a good chef or a good, uh, what's your advice to folks there? How do they find a middle ground that isn't, isn't crazy making over every meal? You know, um, I, it's really funny because a lot of disease and, and issues in our country come from you know, poor diets and things that have been put into our foods and what we do, like without us even knowing or okaying. I mean, there are forces at work um, and you can spend your time on doing them. But for the day-to-day life of a family, right? Um, uh, I, I've, with every client is food is communal. Food is actually people together. Right. Um, so to try to have some meals <laughs> that reflect togetherness rather than bite counting, prodding, right. And reminding adults that nobody likes to be bullied around their food. Nobody, not adults, nobody. 
right? Um, and at the same time, to just kind of do the best you can. There is a time when you lock up the kitchen and say the snacking is over, you're not going to die. You know, and the kid throws themselves on the ground and just so hungry and just so hungry. Okay. Um, and you just let that pass. And then there's a time where everybody gets a snack at nine, like a little yogurt. Yeah. Um, that kind of flexibility is not around the withholding and giving of food as much as it is around being easy around it in a way where you always make the focus more about relationship. It's more about relationship than the food. And when we expect that our kids will love us because we do things, I have, I mean, it's like mind blowing, but not how many families fight at dinner because an amazing dinner is served and the kids don't care. (laughs) I mean, I've made thousands of dollars because kids won't eat like steak with chimichurri sauce. You know what I mean? And I'm keenly aware that in one case, I'm coaching these people around what could not be more insignificant when there is such food scarcity and, and such a line between the have and have nots. Right. And I kind of just always want to be like, it doesn't matter. Serve the steak. They eat it or they don't. Put on a side of buttered noodles. If they ate it, great. Move it along. Dinner's the worst meal of the freaking day for kids. Nobody gets better as the sun goes. Like nobody's their best at five. That's a really good point. You make me think, I have a colleague at work who makes the point that he and his wife studiously avoid having com- making decisions about important things after 6 p.m. at night. Really? Because they, they start to wind down. They, they have a harder time understanding each other. I mean, that's one of the things. Well, I'll actually ask about this. Um, you know, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about how brains work, both ours and other people. But, but, but on this point right here, one of the things that we know, of course, is that when people are tired or when they're stressed or when they're upset, you know, those executive functions go right out the window. And principle among them is the ability to, to, to adopt, to take someone else's perspective on things. So when I'm right. feeling lousy or upset, I don't give a rat's patootie, you know, you just don't understand, right? I can't, I really am not going to see your perspective. And so, you know, because I know you say in the book that, that so often um, we as parents think the dynamic will get better if only our four-year-old would change, right? Oh, yes. You know, and, and it sure seems like in any conversation, at least one person in the room should be the adult. And, hmm, should that be me or my kid? But what are some fundamental things for us as parents to remind ourselves about our brains and about our kids' brains, particularly little guys? Oh boy. Um, my favorite thing from the Newfeld Institute is um, when he talks about, it's funny. I, I, I don't know that that program was like a hundred years and a couple of things always stick out to me every day. And the age of, of reason is considered around seven um, plus or minus many years. <laughs> and, <laughs> and truly, 18 right? if you're an ADHD boy, right? I mean, right. If you're the president, never. Um, sorry for everyone listening. Don't edit it out, man. Um, <laughs> they need to know who I am. So, um, so the age of reason is considered to be when a human can hold two opposing thoughts at the same time. Okay. So the true idea of cognitive dissonance. Dissonance, yeah. Right. 
Um, and you can see um, children adopt this in fits and starts as they get older. You can see it. Um, it and growth, growth is never like this, like just marching up the hills. It's up and down. And um, up until that point, you are dealing with kind of like a drunk. When things are good, they're really good. And when things are bad, they're rocking in the corner. And you have longer stretches of what you see as cognitive dissonance. I want the cookie. Mom said, no, I can wait. I really want it. Right? Um, and you see all kinds of logical errors and buildup of frustration and fatigue and tantrums. Um, and that is growing up. You cannot speak to a child using logic, like the logic will get in. It's like um, Newfeld always says, it's like prying open a rosebud because you want to see it bloom. You kill the rosebud, mm. you kill it. Yeah, I, I really want to just emphasize that because you made that several times in the book. And I just think it's incredibly important. I Heaven knows I made this mistake you know, throughout. My time as I a parent never, with my kids. I have right? never made I, I'm so glad. And I'm, thank God you're the one who wrote this book, right? But our tendency to think that we can use logic. Ugh. And I would even to, to argue back to your original question. Of emotion. Right? And I just think that's that, worth, you know, reminding our telling ourselves We're so dependent on logic. Um, even as adults toward adults, that doesn't work. So much mm. of what we're experiencing is an emotional issue, right? Um, we just become used to kind of coping with it, with logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this idea of waiting for maturity to do its work on kids, we, are, we have the paradox of both waiting and bringing our kids to it. Right. So we are in this true sense, the truest gardener. We feed the soil. We pick off a bug. We maybe even change the plant depending on the sun. We do everything we can, water it properly. But we never technically grow a plant. The plant grows the plant. Hmm. I like you that. See? The plant always grows the plant. The child is already the child. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, we are the environment that the child can fully flourish in. So it's on us. And at the same time, it absolutely has nothing to do with us. So if you don't think about that too much, because thinking about things is the death knell of parenting, <laughs> then, <laughs> then you'll kind of find your way. Like, this is very important, and I'm not important. What I say matters. What I, what I say doesn't matter. It's both. And that is not fixed by logic. That's fixed by hanging in in a connective, emotional way. And that connection's the, the connection's the sunshine, right? I mean, which... which <laughs> We were just talking with uh, Phyllis Fagel and, her, and, yeah. right, and her, her great book, Middle School Matters. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, she, there's an educator she quotes who says, grow the tree you got, right? And so you don't know what it's supposed to be. Because you make the same point, you know, parent the kid that you have. You might think you want to have a kid who's rough and tumble and an athlete, but if, if he's a sensitive artist, he, he is who he is. 
Which is, um, you know, the parenting outside the lines. The number one people I coach are positive parents. The positive parenting movement are the number one people that have the most problems for me, right? Because and why? Um, well, you know, we used to beat our kids, and that really worked. It also caused <laughs> tremendous damage. <laughs> Do you know that book? There's a book, Seven Tips to Traumatize Your Kids with 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 Purpose and Skill, or something like this. Oh my gosh, it's <laughs> yes. so silly. Um, and so, in in absence of um, whooping our kids, right, right. Um, and and. We've gone to the other extreme of, you know, the kid is like stabbing us with a sharp pen and we're like, you seem angry because you wouldn't stab mommy. Right. We've lost our authority. We've lost our um, alpha position in the family. Um, And why is that? That's bad for kids, right? But why? Oh, (laughs) how can a person who does not have reason the ability to look forward, the wisdom to see the past, who, who cannot understand another person's perspective Yet. reliably. Right. How can they be in charge of really anything for a long amount of time? Mm-hmm. That's called Lord of the Flies. That's why you <laughs> see so many problems. Don't name your kid Piggy. Right, you see so many mean behaviors in kids earlier than when we were growing up, maybe. Um, There's so much more bullying, um, mean kid, mean girl, bad, right? That is a lack of adult supervision. That is because kids are worse now. Genetically, we haven't changed. Right, right. right? The DNA is still there. So when there is a, um, because families are always hierarchical, always. And if a child usurps a parent, it becomes like a hydra. They never Hmm. want to relinquish the control. Um, It's like a drug. And the parent is now afraid of the child. So the hierarchy is upside down and you essentially have an immature person running the show. And the parent keeps waiting for the child to say, you know what, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have taken this power. Here it is back to you. And to wrestle control back from a kid when they've had it, I kind of have it in my house right now with my 10-year-old. It sucks. It's exhausting. And, and, you know, I've heard, you know, said that boundaries make kids feel safe. They may fight them. They may, you know, I want, to your point, you know, the kitchen schools, I want, I want, I want, you know, um, <laughs> the story about the ice, I will never be able to walk through the frozen food section of, of, of Whole Foods again without feeling a little bit of trauma. That was cool. That was the one I'll let people, we won't tell that story. People got to pick up the book, but boy, I nearly snorted coffee out my nose. But, <laughs> but, but that, you know, that authoritative parenting, right? We are the authority. We listen, we're responsive. We pay attention to everyone who has a voice. And, but there are rules, you know, that the parents are in charge because without that, the younger kids are, if they feel that the people who are in charge, the authorities can't be counted on, not a, not a good place for kids. It is, um, it is arguably one of the greatest insecurities a child can experience is to have, um, a parent who does not have boundaries. Hmm. Um, it's like feeling like you're just left out in space. You're just floating. These kids, um, 
because of how we are born and gestated as mammals, right? Because of how we come into that world so tight in a ball and we're just even kept like that until it's, you know, everything's supposed to grow as we grow. Mm-hmm. And it's all supposed to be in its time, right? And so when you let out that leash, because you experience a little bit of developmentally normal pushback, when you let that control go, you let the leash go, you Too move fast. the fence back, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is terrifying for the kid. And um, it results in so many misbehaviors and problems in families. And then, of course, the parent has to double down to get the power back. Um, which they feel their only way to do that is punishment, usually. So let me let me let me push because on the one hand we've talked about parents not being overly controlling, and here it's not being let's say fair, right? And so so because I can I can imagine people listening say you, what you just said, you know, you don't want to be totally. all command control, right? Right. Which is why you know at the end of every chapter in every book, I'm like, where are you? Mm. Right. Like. Uh, you can read a book. There's books on shelves now about the problems of weak parenting. You read that and you're like, <gasps> and then you read about the problems of overly strict authoritative parenting, authoritarian parenting. <gasps> okay. No, both are true. Both are whatever. Where are you in your parenting life? So often, like you referenced earlier in the talk, what worked stops working. And nothing in parenting net is, you know, nothing stops working with like an easy transition, (laughs) right? You don't wake up like, now I know, right? You're always either bossing around a kid who needs more independence, right? And we're not seeing or we're being run roughshod by a kid um, and angry. But um, you have to kind of have that painful transition to keep going. So I'm always just asking the parents, like, where are you in your parenting life? And why are you there? Um, and it's not a good or bad thing. It's just get real with it in order to make incremental changes the way you need them, not the way the theory would dictate. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you, that because you, you mentioned this, that, that every chapter ends with really questions to noodle on and writing exercises that, that the, the power of, of seeing our own words on paper to kind of yep. keep steering us in the direction uh, to use your words of the things that we aspire for. I loved your notes to your, um, if I should read one of these, I thought this was so, so lovely. Uh, Dear Megan, please be kind and allow Sophia to choose her own clothing even if in that choosing, she never gets out of her pajamas. <laughs> and when she refuses to put on normal clothing, smile and say, awesome, time for waffles. Mean it when you say, and you underline that, hug her, love Megan. And it's just, it's, you know, we know from brain perspective that when we're stressed, we, we say things that we otherwise would think we'd never say, right? You know, you, dr- you drop the unkind words of the F-bomb in the middle of church or what have you. And, uh, totally. and these, these notes to your self, it's because you make the point that if you, if you kind of keep repeating things long enough, they become of course a habit. And it seems like just such a, a simple, but, but clearly highly effective tool to over time rewire our thinking by re- rewiring how we talk to ourselves. I thought that was such a fun way to end chapters. So you're not like stuck yeah. with theory. You're actually doing something to put it into place, you know? Right. And, um, and it's a fake it till you make it. And if you know that you are a parent that will fall into old habits, 
you know, um, we do, we spend a lot of time making visuals for kids to follow mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. enough for ourselves. Such right? a good point. I would love for every parent to stop making the kid another chart and make themselves a chart. Right. Do you make see that happen? Do you do that with clients? All the time. Ah. All the time. Our most powerful thing is alerts in phones. Really? Give yeah. me an example. So, all right. So um, everything is a garbage fire right now. So if you're listening to this whenever we are amidst COVID, nobody knows what's going on. And we've been in quarantine for 150,000 months. And <laughs> it's awful. And um, um, things are hard for people. And so we usually pick, I try not to pick the worst part, part of people's days to right. start work because that is a, um, too much pressure. So maybe second worst, but I'll have an alert pop up on their phone that says, um, bedtime's coming. I smile and a nod, which means rather than screaming from room to room, the parent is going to. Do people do that? I'm teasing. <laughs> oh, I was like, boyfriend, that's like my MO. All I do is like holler from room to room. Right. So stop yelling in there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> totally. Right? Totally. Everyone stop screaming is what yep. I usually scream. Yep. <laughs> so, but instead you go and you find the child and you're like, that's what we're, we're going to bed now. Yeah. Right. Cause so many parents have increased their cortisol by it's time for bed. It's time for bed. Ralph, have you heard me? We're going to bed. Meanwhile, Ralph is like, right. So, um, those are visual reminders to tell the parent's brain, stop doing what you've always done. And it works. Like parents can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, since we're there and I don't want to take all your time, I want to ask, well, I, since you, you've put your finger on technology, I want to ask about this. Uh, you, you, I know you have, you have two chapters in the book about, about technology and um, again, nothing that we can talk about here is a replacement for this really terrific book. But do you have, um, what do you think you can share with parents that maybe they haven't heard yet about how to help kids manage technology? Because uh, I think you and I are, are pretty squarely on the side of not managing technology for kids, at least not to an extended degree, because yeah. uh, that doesn't tend to work so well. No. You know, it's funny because I wrote this book not at all in COVID. Right. And, um, but it still holds up. I think so. Because I didn't, I didn't go prescriptive. I didn't say hours per age. I didn't name technology. I didn't, you know, um, technology and kids is like the big shame secret. Everyone's so bad for kids. My kids on technology eight hours a day, right? Like <laughs> we, we know what we know and we're also allowing what we allow. Um, uh, and so my big takeaway right now is, especially during COVID, but even before is, you know, if your kid's going to do it, do what you need to do to make it safe and then be ready for your child to not want to get off of it. Like, um, it's so hijacking. I just wish parents understood that this is not a willpower thing. Your kid's not a bad kid when they don't want to get off. It is so hijacking. And I would always, and the book invites parents to 
take care of your own technology life first. Mm -hmm. Check yourself first. There is way too much hypocritical behavior going on. And the kids are like, I got you, buddy. (laughs) You don't even look at me when I talk to you. And that's not to shame parents. Uh, We're working. We're trying to raise kids. We're all at home. We're just take account. Just be real with it. All right. And I say in the book, um, you know, whatever you're paying attention to, wherever your eyes are is what you're paying attention to. It's such a good point. But that really goes back to something you said early on throughout the book, really, of of paying attention to our kids and, and really trying to get the why and having that connection be the North Star. Um, and I think it's such a it's just it's such a wonderfully elegant and powerful philosophy for how to parent. Um, and if I may, let me let me finish up by asking sort of um, because empathy is such a big part of this. What's the last thing, if you can think of, what's the last thing that you typically say to a client or to your, one of your daughters or to yourself? What's the language you use to, for them to feel more connected to you, connected to themselves, connected with their, their, their true north? Mm. For my clients, I always tell them that they're doing better than they think they are. <laughs> Right. Um, I always, I love that. I keep notes and I'll read back to them everything they're doing well. Right. Cause they're doing so many things well, but our brains are programmed to see our failures. That's so, so mean, true. Right. right. Um, Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I'll read back to them and say, you know, this is what I see. So, and this is also what your kids see, hmm. you know, and they're always like, it never fails to make them either like teary or like, Oh, you know? Yeah. For my own kids, I just, um, I love, and this is, I don't know. I don't think I write about it. Maybe I do. I don't remember. (laughs) You think I'd know. Um, I love telling them about when they were little. Uh. So usually that's a big thing before bed. I'd be like, do you know what we used to do when you were little? And I think it's me being nostalgic because yeah, they're yeah. really just so getting so much older right in front of my eyes. Um, but storytelling about your family is one of the most powerful things you can do as a parent. It both places your children in the immediacy of now and puts them in a long line of a family and ancestry and legacy. Their story which is both big and small, you know, which is being mm-hmm. human, being big mm-hmm. and completely small. And that has, that's a really great thing. And, um, and it, it, uh, kids love it. Mm-hmm. They really, really, they love it. It is such a, a form of connection and belonging and nothing feels better than um, belonging to your family you know, really belonging to your family. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. And, and it's one that you, cause you talk about showing up with that idea of sharing stories about when you were three, do you remember that? Um, it's such a, a very subtle way to say, I'm paying attention to you. Yes. 
And, and I've always paid attention to you. And the more discouraged the relationship is between a parent and child, what they want is give me tools to stop discouragement, right? Or find, help me find a way to punish the child into loving me again, um, which generally doesn't work. But um, <laughs> technology is so great now. I, we, you know, I will have the parent just sit with the child and just start at birth with those pictures. Because what ends up happening is that there is a thawing of the parent's heart toward the child. You can start to feel all the hormones when you look at baby pictures. All that oxytocin. Oh, yeah. Um, And it just sidesteps the hurt and the drama for a bit. Because everybody wants to go right into a problem straight away. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is rarely the way to fix it if the relationship is, is, is fraught. You have to go hmm. around the long way to gain trust again. And personally, I mean, I should write another book on it. When I am ready to throttle one of my kids, I will get in a bed and look at the baby pictures just for myself, just to remind myself that I love them. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, so that's something I do at night and just. And so would that be what you say to yourself as you remind yourself, no matter how up and down it's been? Yeah. I still love these kiddos. And Gordon Newfell, and I know I've quoted him a lot today, but um, he often says, and I always find a lot of solace in it. Don't look for the answer for your kids. Be the answer. Huh. Be the answer. Know that you showing up really is like all of it because without you showing up, you can't bring in all the other wisdom and experts and therapies and schools and counselors and that it always begins with you showing up. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what they remember because a lot of kids get a lot of therapy and a lot of help and their parents aren't in it. Their parents are just passing them on to somebody else to fix them. Don't do the drive-by parenting. I know we didn't get to that because you talk about that in the book, but <laughs> but let's be there. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I know. What a mess. <laughs> I know. Well, it is uh, it is clear to me why you are the parenting expert for the Washington Post. And I, I, I've enjoyed this so much because I've read your stuff for years and thought, oh my gosh, how does she figure that out? And holy smokes, is she funny. <laughs> Well, and I have to say really quick, on a personal note, I called you in deep crisis with my own kid years ago, and you were an integral part in calming me down. I'm integral. so happy. I'm so, so happy to hear that. You have no idea like how much I owe you. Oh, goodness. No, we all need to phone a friend once in a while. I know, but you didn't know me from Adam. <laughs> you <laughs> well, could have charged me for that time, yeah. Ned. Well... <laughs> I would I would say that like you my uh, professionally my north star in it is to is to always try to help and we can't always do it but we always well we keep I'm very grateful for you and your work so thank you very much well you're so kind to say that so the book is parenting outside the lines forget the rules tap into your wisdom and connect with your child I, I hope that everyone listening to this will pick it up because it, it really goes back and forth between that's such good advice and oh my gosh that warms my heart <laughs> oh, did you really just say that it's um it's great it's great thank you thanks so much 
Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.